I am Stuart Preston, and this is the Consciousness Podcast, where each week I have a conversation with an expert in human consciousness. This week, I had the pleasure of speaking with Jacob Lucas, and our topic was Buddhism and the rebirth of consciousness. Mr. Lucas is an AHRC-funded PhD candidate at the University of Exeter and jointly supervised at the University of Bristol Buddhist Studies, where he is researching arguments in support of the traditional Buddhist account of rebirth to see whether these are accessible to non-Buddhists who are engaging with practices like mindfulness in broadly secular contexts. We discussed how consciousness moves from one entity to another, the concept of self in Buddhist traditions, making ships appear, and even got a little into dreaming and consciousness. It was a great conversation, so please enjoy our time with Jacob Lucas. I appreciate you taking the time to, to join us on the Consciousness Podcast, and I think um, it'd be interesting to just kind of start with a discussion of consciousness from you know, the, the physicalist point of view and, and move into, you know, your area of expertise that, you know, Buddhism and afterlife and maybe the emergence of consciousness. So, you know, if we could maybe start with uh, kind of your definition or description of consciousness as it relates to mind body, the, the physical aspect and in your specific area with uh, Buddhism and the afterlife. Okay. Um, so I suppose the way I generally approach, um, consciousness is, is to sort of think about it in its own terms as what it um how it presents itself really um sort of so stripping back anything else that we might want to factor in and just try and focus on, on precisely the the kind of core distinctive characteristics that make consciousness consciousness and so here i kind of generally draw on some of the literature that's sort of come out in the last i suppose 20 30 or so years um which particularly looks at consciousness in terms of um, what I'm most interested in, which is phenomenal consciousness. Um, so phenomenal consciousness is, is the fact that there is this, this appearance um, of a world. You know, the world appears a certain way. Um, the philosopher Thomas Nagel talks about what it's like to be something. Um, so here you've right. got things like this subjective character, as it were. Um, and I think that's probably what defines consciousness for me is this kind of this subjective characteristic that um, we, there is this awareness of a world of existing, um, whether that's, I mean, it takes all sorts of forms, whether it's, you know, um, looking at something, smelling something or thinking about something. There's always this sense of, of, kind of witnessing all of this going on. Um, and I think that's kind of where I like to start, really, when I'm when I'm thinking about consciousness. Yeah, that makes um, sense. So the, the, of uh, you said witnessing what's going on, so the the mind witnessing the the knowledge or the the inputs, you know, that are going on around you. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really that 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 sort of um, that sort of bare awareness of of these things going on. Um, so yeah, we kind of. I mean, this is where I kind of I think sometimes the Buddhist kind of categorization becomes quite useful because they generally do divide these things into six um, consciousnesses um, where you have the five kind of classic um, senses. Um, and then the sixth one is basically um, mental consciousness, it's often called. Mm -hmm. um, so that's really anything that, um, that isn't really coming in through any of the senses at a given time. So it can include um, memories, imagination, all kind of abstract 
conceptual thinking, um, those kind of activities, we're aware of them via a kind of mental awareness um, rather than a sensory one. Um, so I find that quite a useful way just to kind of get into kind of get into what consciousness kind of kind of is um, as it kind of appears. Um, and I suppose the question of, of where that fits in to the rest of the world, the actual physical world and the body is, I think, I think the most interesting question in philosophy, I think, um, you know, the mind-body question. Um, what exactly is the relationship between this kind of physical body uh, with all of its interesting physiology and then just the kind of subjective experience of the world that seems to be intimately connect connected with that? Um, so, yeah, so that's, that's the kind of, the sort of area I'm sort of in philosophically. Um, and then the kind of direction I'm sort of taking it all in is in a way a Buddhist, in the Buddhist direction, um, particularly looking at the fact that, you know, the Buddhists traditionally have this, uh, what I like to call a multi-life perspective. Um, this idea that um, consciousness is kind of almost on a, on a kind of journey. It's like a stream that goes from one life uh, between a sort of string of lives, really. Um, with rebirth being the kind of sort of the name for the thing that happens in between each life. Um, so yeah, that's kind of a little bit of where I am. Um, so yeah, and if you look at that that stream of consciousness in, in afterlife, um, I'm sorry, were you about to say something else? No, no, I was just yeah, I was interested to see what yeah what you thought about whether there's something you would like me to elaborate on. Yeah, I mean when you look at, I'm really I'm really interested in this in the afterlife you know, part of this in the consciousness because it adds a, a dimension to it that, you know, I hadn't really considered, you know, in my, my brief studies and looking at this. So when you look at philosophically, logically, you know, making an argument for an afterlife or the survival of consciousness afterlife and, and especially the, the Buddhist perspective on that, kind of, kind of, if you can walk me through like what that argument would look like and, and how we make a case for the, the consciousness you know, living afterlife. Okay. Um, I think, I think probably one of the places I like to start is, is just kind of almost trying to clear the ground a bit. Um, as in, first of all, to kind of bracket out the fact that we might have a lot of assumptions about what consciousness kind of is, which um, don't necessarily have any actual arguments um, for them, or if they do have arguments for them, those arguments, you know, maybe of varying quality. So, so the idea, for example, that um, one has to one has to justify why consciousness won't cease to exist. Right? There's this assumption, I think, a lot that um, it is kind of a given that when the body dies, consciousness disappears. Um, and I think one thing I always like to do is to sort of start to push back on that and say, well, okay, certainly that is an assumption that a lot of people have. Um, it's not an assumption that people have always had. It's been you know, more often than not common for people to think that there's some kind of um, some aspect of consciousness continues um, and isn't entirely identified with the body. Um, so I often like to challenge that a bit and say, OK, so we do live in a kind of culture, broadly speaking, um, where we do think that there's this thing called consciousness, but that it appears when we're born or, or probably on conception or something like that. Uh, and then it sort of ceases to exist when the body falls apart. Um, and I suppose I want to say, okay, so that that's actually already um, 
a kind of a setup. That's a kind of philosophical position that we're taking. Um, and I want to say, well, okay, do we need to take that position? And should we take that position? Should we factor in this idea of um, what I like, to, you know, what I call um, emergence or, you know, um, creation of consciousness at birth or conception? I kind of use birth just to kind of mean uh, kind of just to the general origins, really. Um, and then annihilation, really, at the other end. Um, and I think one of the main principles that I like to push on is this idea that there, there are real problems with, with assuming that, that there, is, there are things that sort of pop into existence um, and then pop out of existence later on. It seems far more um, kind of simple and coherent, I think, to assume that if, things that if there are things that truly exist and are really fundamental parts of reality, they probably don't pop into and out of existence. They probably are there. Um, and they probably interact with each other and they interact with the world. But there's no reason to assume that they would, um, they would kind of pop in a pop out of existence. And I think if consciousness can be shown to be one of those things, then I think we've already got a kind of um, a reason to, to consider that maybe it's just part of the world. It's, it's always been there um, and it always will be there. Um, and as long as it can be shown that consciousness is, is not the same sort of thing, as the body, right? If we can show that the body is kind of a certain kind of aspect of reality with certain properties and characteristics, consciousness is is a different kind of aspect of reality with a different set of, of characteristics, um, then we don't really have an obvious reason to think that they would be either identified with one another or that you necessarily always needed to have one of them in order to have the other. So that seems to be the motivation right behind the idea that death would be the end of consciousness is the idea that well if consciousness is maybe a brain process or it's produced by the brain or the body then i suppose when the body falls apart then that process will have to stop and consciousness will have to disappear but if if we can kind of get our heads around the idea that consciousness really isn't like that consciousness just has properties and qualities that that we just don't find um, in the physical body then we start to have a reason to suggest that maybe you know, consciousness just isn't isn't kind of dependent in that way. It's it's not kind of right. over the body or reducible to the body. I mean, that's certainly a beginning yeah, of it. I mean, I can go on. There. <laughs> yeah, no, I understand. There's a couple of things there you said that um, I might want to clarify. Yeah. I almost feel like when you're talking about this, that when you're talking about quote consciousness, it almost sounds like you're describing something that is. Um, like ubiquitous it's, it's not like each person has his or own consciousness we're talking about it's almost like you're talking about a a, a common consciousness and, and i don't want to use like pseudoscience but almost like a consciousness field or something is that how you mean to refer to it or, or uh, are you no, said, um, speaking about an individual's consciousness i suppose i'm actually i'm I suppose i'm talking about um individual consciousness but i suppose okay. um at the same time i'm trying to kind of get um uh, kind of establish in a way the, the core characteristics um, that kind of all consciousnesses would have um, in common. The thing that makes consciousness is what they are. So in a way, there is this, uh, what we could call, I suppose, there's a type of thing we could call consciousness. Um, and then, yes, there will be particular um, instantiations of that, particular consciousnesses. Um, and I think, yeah, and I think I would probably, you know, ultimately want to say that, you know, there are different consciousnesses, um, but they do all seem to right. 
presumably share this kind of this quality um whatever that is you know this kind of phenomenal right. um characteristic or this subjective characteristic um okay but i think um, that i had i'm oh, sorry go ahead sorry no i was just thinking i i think um I think part of my tendency to think to talk about it in these general terms is that um, I do kind of think of, of the way I often approach this argument as being divided into two halves. One that likes to push back on the assumption that consciousness has to cease at death and that, that really there's nothing kind of nothing experiential after after one of us dies. Um, that's the first half, and that I'm kind of more open to just allowing. Um, allowing us to assume that maybe there is some kind of universal kind of underlying consciousness or some kind of um, consciousness field, if you will. Um, because even then it would still be open. Um, we'd be open to then say, well, there's still going to be some kind of experience after, um, after death. It's just that it sort of merges into some kind of collective experience. Um, but the second part of the argument where I try to get a bit more, more Buddhist, I would then try and pull back on that and say, well, actually, I'm not sure. Um, that actually works. I'm not sure consciousness is can be kind of merged with one another in that way, but, but there's kind of a second, kind of a second piece of the argument, I think, that, that kind of gets us there, if that makes sense. No, it totally makes sense. It's, it's very interesting, because even in, in looking through some of your, you know, that looking through that paper and talking to you, that's not a, not something I really zeroed in on, was the, the emergence and how does something just pop up and questioning that notion? Because I think you're right. Everything I've been looking at doesn't even question that. It's just, it's kind of an assumption. So it's interesting. Um, you know, you kind of look at the the growth of a human being. And at what point does consciousness, you know, pop in there? Or what, what point is it present? You know, and you think about a human being that grows, you know, from, you know, a couple of cells joining and then the cells split and so a human being also doesn't just pop into existence there's there's an emergence of a human being and the growth of a human being is it, is it possible that the consciousness is doing the same thing that it's growing from the very early beginnings into a fully developed consciousness and then like the human body dies and i know you're challenging that notion but i mean kind of how does that concept play into it have you looked at that yeah, I mean, that's where I, um, I so I like to, to make a distinction, and this isn't my own distinction. This comes from um, particularly a philosopher called Galen Strawson, um, where this distinction between what you call emergence and brute emergence. So you've got the kind of, you've got emergence, um, the kind of emergence where you can kind of tell a story where you start off with one um, a set of kind of factors or constituents, and then you, you show how they slowly build up until eventually you end up with this um, this kind of other thing. So, for example, you could watch a, a ship being built. Um, you know, you see the planks come together, you see the, the sort of sails be brought in, and, and at first you just have these different things being brought together. And then eventually you have a ship, you know, this ship emerges um, from these constituents. Um, and there I think emergence is kind of, is unproblematic, right? Because you can just see how, um, you know, I mean, in a way, I think that form of emergence is unproblematic because I think we can let go of the idea that there really is um, a ship. You know, there is this special thing called a ship. It seems there we can find it easier to, to admit that, well, yes, yeah, you know, there is a ship. I mean, we can talk about a ship being there. But really, it's 
it's a label that we apply to this kind of structure that was built slowly um, over time. Brute emergence is different. Um, brute emergence happens if we start to think that you no, know, there must be there must be this particular thing called a ship, these particular qualities. Um, there must be something very special there, this sort of shipness um, that appeared at some point in the story. And we start to try and look at where this happened. Um, and we often won't find it because in a way, I think, you know, I would push for the idea that uh, you know, in that case, there isn't really a ship, it's, it's a label. And you can kind of decide, you know, how many sails a ship has to have, how many planks it has to have, you know, it's, it's a kind of, uh, a kind of a construct, a social convention um, that we decide upon. It's not really a real thing. And this is where I think the question of consciousness becomes the most in, sort of interesting, because I think once we accept that consciousness is a real thing, that, it, that it's, not, um, it's not simply a, a word we use or a label we apply to things. Um, I mean, of course, the word consciousness is, but, but what we're trying to get at is some kind of phenomenon, something that's going on that's really quite distinctive and seems to be distinguishable from a lot of other things. Um, and once we're dealing with that, then we can't really um, yeah, have it just pop in. If it's going to emerge, we're going to have to be able to tell a story about, about how it slowly builds up. And that, I think, is the problem um, with most approaches to the emergence of consciousness, is that they don't really tell that story. They start by talking about physical processes, um, which don't have any kind of any of the characteristics that consciousness have, has, and then uh, and then consciousness just pops into the story later on. It's kind of pulled out like a sort of magician, like a rabbit um, from a magician's hat. And I think that's that's brute emergence. I think that's the point where we're starting to just imagine things are just popping in. Um, yeah. So does that make sort of some sense of that? Yeah. And so you're, you're looking at Buddhism and consciousness, you know at birth or being reborn or persisting is it that you then you're looking at consciousness is not it just doesn't pop in but it, you know at what point does this this uh so what is what is your position on how this consciousness does appear then if we're not just making an assumption that it pops in there what is what is your your idea on the emergence of of this consciousness or or am i misunderstanding the concept no, already I think that that's where I, I think I'm, I'm kind of more open, really. I think um, I think the first thing I always am sort of keen to establish is that if we're looking at the picture of the world as a whole, um, we're, we're not wanting to go down an avenue where consciousness pops into reality as a whole from nowhere. Um, but when it comes to the question of how consciousness gets where it does, you know, the fact that once we've accepted that, okay, there is consciousness, it seems to be intimately associated and intimately connected and responsive to this body which also seems to be responding to my consciousness you know so for example this entire conversation we're having is kind of motivated by the fact that both of us presumably are conscious and we're interested in consciousness and at some point that consciousness that quality those interesting qualities that consciousness has are able to eventually get to form words you know sounds that are able to kind of come out of my mouth and go through the system and that's just really fascinating because because those sounds that sort of sound energy that's coming out of my mouth and the neurons firing that allow that you know make that happen they are they have certain characteristics that you know, scientists are kind of good at kind of examining and consciousness has a whole different set 
of characteristics um, that are easily recognizable from the inside. But how exactly those two go together? How how did this kind of these sort of this developing organism kind of come into contact with this kind of consciousness and uh, what kind of relationship do they have? It is a question that I think in a way I'm probably not sure I know how to kind of fully answer. I mean, I have various kind of sort of theories or potential kind of models that one could use. Um, and I generally do adopt those from Buddhist kind of, sort of theories, really. And I think they're kind of models that we could use as, as potential explanations. Um, but it's it's a very hard area to kind of have a firm right. kind of view on, I think. Right. Um, which I guess kind of takes me to my next question. You know, if consciousness does persist, you know, after life, how is it related to, you know, the quote self or, or self-identity? Does that does that also persist after death? Mm. Yes, I think this is always an interesting question, especially when it comes to Buddhism, because Buddhism is quite well known for denying that there is a self. Um, and I think that the way I often try to look at that is, um, I, so the self can kind let of let me let me interrupt real quick. That that's interesting. Just to get your opinion, do you think that there is? a self you know and a you know typical ego do you think you know that buddhists are, are right on that or you know what's your position on this on the quote self um so i think that buddhists kind of have often disagreed amongst themselves um and so I, my view is i think i'm probably um aligned with some buddhists more than others um and i think it's ultimately i think that um we do over inflate um, what we think the self is. And I think that if there is a self, it's going to be something very minimal. I mean, I mentioned earlier this kind of witnessing um, that seems to be part of consciousness. And I think that if if there is a self, um, it's going to be that just that witnessing um, because I can kind of, I can I kind of identify with lots of different things, right? So I can say, well, you know, I'm you know, Jacob Lucas and I have this kind of body and I look like this and I, I do these kind of things. But all of those things can kind of change. You know, I can change my name or I could have some you know, reconstruction surgery. Um, I could do things very differently. And a lot of these things could be changed, um, but I would kind of still be here, right? It feels like I'd still be there just watching that happening. And it seems to be because there is that kind of witnessing aspect that just kind of would continue through that experience. Um, and it seems you can kind of switch in and out almost any aspect of our experience. Um, but you still have this kind of witnessing. And it, but if you got rid of that witnessing, if you got rid of consciousness, well, then it really feels hard to imagine that I'd be here. Right? It feels very hard to imagine if, if my experiential kind of awareness of existing was taken away, then it does seem like, yeah, I'd be gone. So I do think that that, that witnessing seems to be the closest thing to a self. Um, I think where I kind of think the Buddhists are kind of right to push back on the idea that there's a self is that we often will assume then that there must be this kind of this witnesser, you know, this experiencer, this me who is watching the world um, or watching right. my experiences. And I think that's where I, I begin to sort of think, well, actually, I'm not sure that, that there is a, a separate experiencer and an experience. I think there's just a process of witnessing that involves the experience as much as it involves the sense of there being an experience or I think that it's kind of almost an optical illusion of consciousness that we think that there's this this 
viewer you know there's this person almost sitting in the in the cinema watching a screen i think in a way if we're anything with a screen you know with all these things on it um and i think there is a tendency to think that we're this kind of separate self um and i think that's something i, I think yeah is sort of buddhists deny and i think i can understand why they do because i think we're not so separate from our experience as we think we are um, right. yeah so that's kind of my view i kind of have a minimalist sort of witnessing that i would say is probably going to be the self um, yeah, and that I think makes that, good sense. So yeah. I guess, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so I was just going to sort of sum up and say, well, and so if consciousness continues after death, then that witnessing by, just by definition, would have to continue as well. Um, so the self would kind of end up going along just because that's almost just another description almost of consciousness. Right. Yeah, it's not separable mm. from consciousness. So that would that would then persist. Yeah. Um. So, you know, in, in the paper that I read, you know, in your analysis of, of Thompson, um, yeah, I see this concept of mind and world. And, I mean, what is that? How does that relate to, to mind-body? Or could you kind of elaborate on that concept? Mm, so, yeah, I kind of did a little bit of sketching around this. Um, and I do think that the world, the, the words kind of mind-body-world can often mean many things. I've, I've run it. Basically, there's at least two meanings behind each of them. So I was thinking mind can mean, it can mean either awareness or thinking, right? So it can either mean awareness as in consciousness, or it can be right. kind of that sort of cognitive domain of experience. Body, likewise, can mean our bodily experiences, um, or it can mean um, literally the objective physiology that we have. Um, and world, likewise, I think, can mean the objective reality. It can mean that which is beyond experience. Or it can mean something more like um, our life world, you know, our, um, our kind of overall understanding um, and sense of, of, of having a world, in a way. Um, so I suppose, for me, the question of kind of the mind-body relationship is actually more a question of how awareness relates to the sort of objective physiology of the body which is of course part of the objective reality um so world there can either mean that kind of objective world the world beyond consciousness um or it can mean our world you know having the fact that i live in a world um of experience you know i kind of have a sense of um, of being a body but also of, of how the world is for me um, so I kind of feel like there's a kind of various sub- subdivisions, really, of how, how we can interpret each of those words. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, so then that, that kind of gives us a gateway, really, to kind of start to explore what, you know, what each of those, what the relationship would be there. Yeah, and that seems like a, a natural e- extension for the, the duality is if, you know, you're observing the body, observing the world would be just a, a natural um, conclusion also. Mm, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think you know, body almost. It's I think sometimes these to try and make a distinction between these things is quite tricky because I'm not sure I know what what part of my body I'm experiencing or what part of the world I'm experiencing um, sometimes. So for example, when I'm looking, um, so there's like a cup in front of me. When I'm looking at this cup, it would be fascinating to know whether what I'm experiencing is, I know, some kind of um, sort of neurological field in my brain that creates the representation of a cup. 
or whether actually there's something a bit more kind of um, interesting going on and that actually some aspect of consciousness and the real cup in the world are kind of inter interconnected. It's, it's one of those kind of quite mind-boggling questions really of, of where where does consciousness meet the world? Is it only in the brain or is it extended throughout the body um, or is it extended further into the world itself? Um, and there's a lot of debates going on about that um, in philosophy of mind about whether yeah, consciousness is extended or whether it's it's really is limited to the brain and it's, it's right. not something i really have a yeah kind of a definitive view on i find it quite fascinating but but i kind of feel like it's very open yeah i mean we could go i mean just that one concept it, it's so funny you mentioned something as simple as a cup and that that concept and we don't want to explore it right now but it just it makes me curious you know everything from you know neuroscience and representations, you know, within our brain, to panpsychism, to cosmic consciousness, and there's so many different things. Like mm. um, life being a, a computer simulation. Yeah. And there's so many different things in that one thing you bring up that that, that you know is something so simple, and and yet it sure does bring up a lot of questions. Mm. Yeah, I think I think it's um, I think it's why for me, yeah, philosophy of mind is is so. Um, interesting is because it's it's a way to kind of um, kind of re-enter the world really or re reinvent your relationship to the world because you suddenly realize that yeah. you know once you've moved beyond the idea that you know maybe we're a little kind of a little person sitting inside a skull looking out through these windows you know, once you've kind of abandoned that view you begin to wonder exactly where you know where all this experience is coming from and, and where is it Oh, where is it located? Where is where is my experience of the world located in the world? Right. Um, and yeah, there's lots of theories, but I think in a way they all have have their problems. And um, <laughs> and it's why I mean I'm always I'm always you know, drawn to and, and you know sometimes quite convinced by um, the opposite uh, approach, uh, which is the, the sort of idealist approach, which says, well, actually, it's not it's not that way round. It's not that our experience of the world is in the world. It's that the world is in our experience of it. That you know, that it's the relationship is the opposite. Right. There is this field of awareness, and um, and the world is is just simply an aspect of that. You know, there isn't really right. this kind of this distinction. I mean, that kind of plays kind of hell with um, the attempts to try and really map where in the brain consciousness is. <laughs> it kind of blows the whole thing right. up. Um, but it doesn't seem obvious to me that that in itself um, makes it a a kind of a view that's incorrect i think it's just that it, it would be a bit like i don't know like quantum physics it would suddenly change the whole orientation of things um in a way that would be quite um i think upsetting for a lot of people but but nonetheless has a lot of interesting kind of avenues yeah yeah it sure is um and i and i saw you know that you had listed dreaming as a form mm. of consciousness you know and it's something that I'd always kind of, you know, from a layman's point of view, heard the separation, you know, when you're dreaming, you're not conscious, you know, when you're asleep, you're not conscious. And, you know, mm. so what's your, what's your perspective on that? And, and, and how, you know, kind of expand on that. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, the mention of dreaming is because waking dreaming being by Evan Thompson is, is a great exploration of these kind of issues. Um, and I think as he kind of points out, um, yeah, the approach to dreaming as being a kind of unconscious state is always is a bit, um, I suppose almost to be kind of slightly kind of um, sort of forceful about it. It's, it's somewhat kind of um, a sort of a lazy approach, I think, um, taken by a lot of people who are kind of 
not really interested in dreaming. Um, so they just kind of, when they're dealing with it, they sort of put it to one side and say, well, you're not conscious when you're dreaming. And I think the, the problem with that is that dreaming, dream experiences seem to be like any other experience um, in that um, they kind of seem to happen to you, right? I mean, as far as I, when I look over it, you know, uh, when I had a dream last night, it felt like it was basically I went to sleep. I mean, I lay down in my bed, I drifted off into this kind of nice kind of relaxing sort of state. Um, and then I kind of found myself in this weird sort of dream. I can't quite remember what happened, but I know that something happened. And if I sat for a little bit, I'd probably remember. Um, but these events unfolded um, that were the dream, and then they kind of came to an end. Um, and then I sort of woke up again. And it feels like that's kind of quite a coherent sort of um, story, really, where I'm, I'm conscious in these various different ways through the process of going to sleep, really. And dreaming just seems to be one of those um, ways of being conscious. Um, so it's kind of interesting, really, that, that they think of it in terms, as being unconscious. Um, maybe they mean, I just think they might mean subconscious, you know, so the idea that there are these that there are right. kind of background consciousness in a way that it seems to be kind of quite straightforward, really, you know, that there is always going to be a distinction between what you're vividly conscious of, what's at the forefront of your experience. But then there'll be lots of other things that are in the background, that they're very vague. You might not even immediately think that you're aware of them, but you probably kind of are aware of them. Um, so, for example, um, I, I suppose I always think, you know, in terms of sometimes like beliefs are a bit like this, right? So I'm pretty sure I believe um, something, um, and I think you believe it too. Um, but you're not really aware of it. And you'll only become aware of it when I mention the belief. So, for example, I believe that there's not a comet that's about to hit the Earth and destroy it. And I think you probably believe that too. Because I think if we believed right. there was a comet, we'd be quite terrified. So it seems to me that that belief right. is there. Right? Our world is populated with lots of, kind of truths um, that are kind of truths for us. Um, and among them are things like that, you know, very trivial things like, you know, I know that Paris is the capital of France. Um, and it seems that I am aware of that um, pretty much all the time. It's just I'm not aware of it in a vivid way. It's not the forefront of my experience. It's just there in the background. Um, but it kind of seems like if someone was to challenge one of those kind of beliefs, I would become aware that I did believe it, that it was there in the background um, because by them saying it, they trigger trigger that and i can i think this is it's quite a hard view to to justify really because i think people you know there are people who say well no beliefs are unconscious until they're absolutely conscious and i think i, I just think I, I just kind of can't help but kind of just disagree from my own experience i think with that view because i feel like actually there's a lot going on in the background of my awareness that i'm kind of aware of but just not in a very vivid way if that makes sense it does it um, yeah, it makes me chuckle a little bit. It's almost like um, Schrodinger's belief that, mm -hmm. you know, until you observe it, you almost don't know. Because you're, you're absolutely right. You predicted it with 100% accuracy. I do not believe a comet is about to hit the Earth. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't consciously aware that I had that belief until, you know, you challenged it. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's an interesting notion. You know, and, and yeah. it makes me think, it makes me think about, you know, and, and 
in meditating, you know, as, as I meditate in the very, very simple, you know, Zen meditation of letting thoughts flow through your mind and, and not, not letting the thoughts take over your mind and being, being at peace. It almost seems like the dreaming is, is kind of the sleeping version of that is your mind is kind of allowed to go and, and have these thoughts and your consciousness does play around a little bit in observing it, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even directing it. And then when you're awake again, those observations, that awareness of these internal thoughts is kind of that the actual consciousness being part of all that. So I wonder if those two are kind of related, the part of the brain that just kind of, as I always put it, secretes thoughts. It just puts out thoughts, which is the, the part of the brain you have to kind of ward off, you know, as, as you meditate. Mm-hmm. It sounds to me like the way you described that, it almost sounds kind of like a similar event happening subconsciously or during sleep. Mm. Yeah, I think so. And I think that, I think for me, the way I often like to think about it is in terms of, of thinking of consciousness as being um, like a spectrum that goes from vivid, really vivid kind of focused um, to a kind of quite dull background um, awareness. And that, um, you know, you can imagine there, there are points, especially, you know, during meditation sometimes where you're really vividly aware of something, you know, it's very um, fine and clear. Um, but then a lot of the day we spend, it's far less vivid than that. We, we're mainly kind of operating in a way where our experience is kind of relatively vague. Um, and I think that dreams might just be another step down from that. I mean, some people do have very vivid dreams, but I personally generally don't. So I find that my dreams are more like, um, I suppose it's more like um, one of those kind of stories you're telling yourself in your head, you know, during the day. You don't kind of realize you're doing it um, until later on. You think, oh, yeah, when that was happening, I was kind of telling myself a little sort of story whilst that was happening. Um, and it seems that if, if your kind of sensory experience was turned off, you just have that background. You wouldn't really, you know, there'd be nothing else. It'd just be the background. Um, and I think dreams may be a bit like that. But suddenly with your, your system kind of shutting down a bit when you fall asleep, you're left just with this very background world of consciousness that's quite kind of dull a lot of the time. Um, right. And that's why dreams are kind of subconscious in a way, because they're so much less vivid than waking consciousness most of the time anyway. Right. So it's uh, what, so. What is subconscious versus unconscious? Mm. What, what is something that is subconscious? Is subconscious those, those thoughts that I'm describing? Is it still brain activity, but it's just um, kind of automatic things that are going on, you know? Versus unconscious, where there's absolutely zero awareness. Mm. I think. I think I'm certainly. Yeah, I think I would say unconscious is, I would just say, is, is basically, for me, synonymous with, with non-conscious. So, I mean, maybe in a way, because people do often use subconscious and unconscious in the same way. Maybe the key is to say something like the non-conscious is basically just simply has nothing to do with consciousness. It's, it's not, oh, you're not aware of it at all. There's no kind of relationship there. And then if we talk about something like the subconscious or the unconscious, I suppose there I would identify with that with, with a kind of background to awareness um so for example it seems to me that if i take an example of an experience i'm having if i try to start to try and describe my experience um i could start with the really obvious stuff um but increasingly i would be trying to categorize and catalog 
experiences that are definitely there, um, but they're so short-lived and vague um, that I don't really know what to call them. Um, and sometimes it's easier to get a handle on what those experiences are than at other times, I think. And, and I think that, that kind of drift towards a kind of, yeah, what I think of as like a background um, kind of region of consciousness is actually very hard to, to sort of notice because the really vivid experiences take up all of our attention and they are really, um, well, they're just, it's just they're kind of loud almost. It's almost like to use an analogy to noise. Right. It's kind of, they're loud or bright. Um, it's very hard to notice the other stuff um, because our attention is drawn to the vivid. But I think in a way there is this interesting distinction between the kind of focus of our mind and the actual field itself which seems to include both vivid and dull experiences and it seems like our our focus is drawn towards the vivid um but that doesn't mean that we can't um through training begin to notice begin to expand that focus so it includes both the vivid but also the sort of more dull background experiences um and it seems that through training that does seem to be something that meditators have claimed they can do which kind of gives us a whole new view on then on what consciousness actually is, because it starts to look more like a field, which includes all sorts of things. Um, and we normally only see this kind of, we only think that we're conscious of this really vivid stuff. Um, kind of, right. I think of as being in the middle. Um, so then I think the subconscious would be the periphery. It would be in this, you know, if you imagine it as like a field, consciousness, as we understand it, would be this sort of center point. Um, and then the subconscious would be the increasing drift towards the periphery, towards the edge. Okay. No, I like that. I like that explanation. Um, so in thinking about, you know, persistent consciousness after death, um, do you, you have any experience or information or insights on, you know, so-called out-of-body experiences or near-death experiences, that, you know, those kind of things where people actually experience something, where they experience the consciousness as it would be outside of their own body? Mm. Yeah, I mean, personally, I haven't actually had any of those kind of experiences. Um, but, I mean, certainly, once again, uh, Thompson explores this really well. And he himself, actually, he describes his own um, out-of-body experience. Um, and he describes how, how personal it is and how um, convincing, in a way, that it makes one feel as if there really is this separate consciousness that's kind of sort of left the body. Um, even though, in a way it's hard to use those as evidence you know, because, because we don't know whether our experience is ultimately a simulation in the brain anyway. Um, you could experience yourself doing all sorts of interesting things um, and flying around all over the place. Um, and it could still just be a simulation in the brain. So it's kind of very hard to actually use it as evidence, um, which is why in a way I'm always quite pleased right. that I haven't had any of these experiences because it, <laughs> It kind of makes it always makes me feel like I'm a bit, I can be a bit more even-headed about it because I, I just feel like I, I'm right. looking at it from a purely philosophical perspective without actually having any sense that I um I know that I've had some kind of you know I've seen something that means I have to kind of um, believe it right um, but there's certainly I mean you know you, when you get into these kind of um, communities you know whether it's Buddhist communities or any kind of where there's you know a lot of meditators and um, people with often you know spiritual kind of or religious beliefs they're often incredibly um, kind of straightforward and relaxed about it. It's just a kind of a matter of course. You know, I've, I've come across people like that who just talk about it and say, well, this is just, this is just what happens. You know, you just, 
you know, occasionally you're just out of your body. Um, and it's hard really to, I think sometimes to distinguish, are they just unaware of some of the more interesting kind of problems um, with, with that view? Or actually, are they just completely settled that, that they've experienced enough to know that, um, you know, that's exactly what happened, you know, that they were left their body and, and, and that's the end of it. Um, so it's kind of quite hard, really, to work out, you know, whether they have some information um, that actually would be really important for like a neuroscientist to get their hands on, but they've just never kind of met, you know, <laughs> they've never actually had right. a conversation about it because often they're very different groups of people, um, kind of hard-nosed neuroscientists and kind of spiritual kind of practitioners. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that's my kind of, <laughs> sort of 20 cents worth on that. Yeah. Uh, what, any thoughts on, I mean, your notion of, you know, the, the consciousness surviving after death, you know, just kind of theorizing the, mm. the after the out of body experience. I mean, do you think that's possible? Do you think, um, how do you see that playing into your, or I should say the, you know, the Buddhist views of mm. this consciousness surviving past death? I mean, is that, is it maybe like an observable first step? Uh, I mean, possibly. I'm not saying is that what's going on, but how does this tie into to your studies of the the Buddhist afterlife? So there are there are kind of kind of two or three different models that the Buddhist tradition generally has. Um, one of them's kind of um, really always so straightforward as to be slightly boring. Um, and this you find in the uh, the earliest, uh, what's often considered to be the earliest tradition, the Theravada tradition, which is um, sort of really popular in Southeast Asia in particular, um, and Sri Lanka. Right. Um, so according to that, that view, the idea is that um, rebirth is this immediate process. So consciousness actually can't um, exist separately from a body and brain. Um, but it can exist separately from this body and brain, right? So the idea is that your consciousness will always need um, a kind of physical basis. But once this physical basis, once this body is no longer able to sustain or support consciousness, it will immediately transfer to a developing um, being um, in this world or in, you know, if there are any other worlds, other realities or um, you know, other dimensions, it could you know, just transfer. So this is almost like a almost like a quantum jump kind of approach where it really is just a case where for whatever reason there is just this ability just to leap the consciousness will just dart to wherever there's a body um right it was digital i was it was almost like a digital view you know you're, you're here and then you're there and there's no in between there's yeah, just it's, it's not flying around looking for a host no no it's just it's, yeah it's just it's yeah, an, an instant be... quantum change yeah um then you have the the northern indian view that um that i think is common to hindu views as well where there's this idea of a subtle body that you have this kind of almost like a halfway energy that's not quite it's not consciousness but it's also not physical energy as we understand it and the body um that subtle body is kind of carries consciousness in a way so the idea is that as your physical body dies that sort of subtle body extracts itself from the physical body and then drifts around and and this subtle body is capable of experiencing the world just as well as the kind of normal physical body is. Oh, interesting. Um, but the idea is it's a bit like a dream body. It's, it's very changeable, unstable, 
um, and its way of experiencing the world is, is supposed to be very confusing um, and disturbing because, well, first of all, there's this idea that you know it's not really alone. So there's lots of these beings flying around. And, and so it's quite a kind of, it's almost like something from um, Christmas Carol, I think. That's kind of often sort of similar, um, quite a disturbing right. kind of world um, in which the desire is to try and find a stability and the quiet almost of a of a physical stable um, body one that's just developing slowly gradually um in a womb presumably or, or some other form and so that's that that what happens is these beings kind of end up trying to find the body and then they kind of eventually dissolve into this body and then they kind of connect so that's a kind of more what i think is like an analog view you know it's kind of this sort of general it's like a whole story where uh, a being goes from one existence to another um very steadily right. um but it obviously introduces far more to the story uh, and many elements that I think, you know, we, we kind of, we can go on the testimony of meditators who've claimed that they've kind of, they remember this experience, um, but ultimately that's all we're going to be able to go on. And it's kind of, so it's a bit dis- unsatisfying if we're looking for a real kind of um, proper, kind of, um, something really solid um, so yeah, that's the other one. And then there's a kind of third one, which actually I think I would go with because it's it's kind of halfway between the two, um, almost. Um, so I think that the, the digital one, the kind of Theravada digital view is too much of a jump because it doesn't explain why consciousness would do this, would jump in this way. Um, right. The analog kind of, uh, sort of Northern Indian view um, is just introduces so many new elements without really explaining why they're there. Um, and I think that the other view is, is I suppose, the idealist view. Um, there was a, the Yogacara school of Buddhism were, were idealists who believed that there wasn't really a physical world, that the physical world was um, a manifestation of consciousness, that um, it was just experiences arising. Um, so if we go with that view, then I suppose it makes more sense to understand why, how you would get from one rebirth to the next, um, because it basically would be more akin to the idea that you're, um, that you have kind of taken part in a shared world with other beings and you've got a body in that shared world, almost like an avatar in an online simulation or an online game. Um, and then the, um, your, your, your avatar dies you know, and you, you can't use it anymore. But right. the whole reason why you're even here is because you've logged in to this kind of particular simulation uh, and you've been logged out. Um, so the idea is you then, well, then you just log back in again and you try and find, um, and either you try and find another place you can go in the shared world, um, or you end up creating a kind of personal world where you experience things that are far more just they're your own experiences. Um, so I think that one at least, um, at least you could make a philosophical argument for that, because if you made an argument for idealism, which they do exist, there are arguments that say, well, actually, you know, consciousness is the first thing we know. The physical world is not something we know directly or we know our experiences. If you then are willing to say, well, maybe what we call the physical world is just a shared world, then suddenly it isn't so much a question of how consciousness gets from body to body. It's more about how different bodies or different embodied experiences arise in consciousness. So then we're not so much looking to plot the journey of consciousness from one body to the next. Um, instead, we're just talking about how the experience of death leads on to the experience of a new of a new birth, and that'll be far more to do with the psychology 
of the person in question than about the actual right. physical setup of the world. And I find that at least that's actually, I think, for me, that feels quite simple, actually, although it's a very radically counterintuitive view. Um, I think it actually is quite simple because it's easier to work out how you would make sense of it in a way, how you would kind of um, understand how it works. Um, I don't know. It you, does seem to fall into very... place a bit easier. Sorry? Yeah, it does seem to fall into place a lot, a lot easier. Mm. You know, it does seem to make sense. In fact, it, you know, as you're describing, it, to me, it almost reframes what death means. Mm. You know, because we look so much at death meaning the physical body dying, you know, but in, in that third point of view, it's the the body almost just seems like you said, like like an avatar or a vessel or a vehicle or an instrument as opposed to, you know, the life is actually the consciousness. Mm. I think it does end up having a lot of internal coherence. I think the, the trick, I think, for a lot of people is, is getting into it, you know, that, that, from our you know from our normal kind of intuitive understanding of the world it just seems completely um completely crazy um or completely out there um but i think once you're in it it kind of follows its own rules and it kind of there are lots of explanations you know so someone could say well why you know why on earth would you would you even have a physical world and a body you know, why would it even seem as if you needed uh, neurons and all this you know, biochemistry and all these interesting, sophisticated systems in the body. Why would you even need right. those if if you can just create a world, you know, from from anything? Um, right. And I think that, I mean this is where the Buddhist kind of argument is generally well. Once you once you accept some of the Buddhist assumptions about how the mind actually works, it starts to make more sense. So particularly the idea that that we, you know, it, it may sound like you know, as consciousnesses, we're kind of these sort of minor gods in that we can create the world. Um, but the Buddhist assumptions actually know we're very we're trapped in our habitual um, sort of desiring tendencies. You know, we drift from thing to thing. Uh, you know, even if you have an entire day to yourself when you can do whatever you want, you're still often you know, we'll often get caught up in weird things and things that are a bit you know, distressing, or we'll you know, yeah, entertain unpleasant thoughts, or we'll get caught up in a, a pointless kind of activity. Um, so we seem to have this tendency to drift towards all sorts of weird scenarios even when we think we have a choice about it. So it's not so hard to imagine that even if consciousness is able to produce all sorts of things, it nonetheless habitually is drawn towards the same kind of thing over and over again, particularly um, stability. You know, the fact that if there is this physical world, which doesn't exist on its own, but is nonetheless a set of rules within consciousness, rules that are able to produce a physical world that has certain physical laws, Certain things are possible, certain things are not possible. Um, and out of those physical laws, you get, you know, evolution, you get these bodies um, that can develop. Um, those bodies could end up becoming perfect housings for a consciousness that just wants to kind of just live, you know, just wants to be able to touch and feel and be kind of small, you know, just to be able to look out through eyes, listen through ears and not be overwhelmed, basically. Um, and that could be potentially an explanation for why we are even you know, why we're here is that it's quite nice to have a physical body, you know. Um, so having a world that seems very rigid and seems to require all these sort of physical conditions um, right. may actually really help kind of get whatever it is that we're looking for, basically. Yeah, it's interesting too because I think I, I tend to start to make assumptions 
when you're looking at consciousness from that perspective that it's almost this perfect infallible entity and Buddhists obviously are, are seems to me are, are focused on the the fallibility of it and the you know the the desires and the suffering mm-hmm. and so it, it almost gives it a, a very human personal aspect to it when I think it's it's easy to go to the science fiction model and say oh if my consciousness is creating all of this why isn't it perfect mm-hmm. and it seems like Buddhism is, is not only addressing that, but it's like a central part of it that, of course, that's not the way it is. Mm. I mean, it, it's very similar almost to the idea of dreams. You know, that if once we accept that dreams are created by our own psychology, we don't automatically think, why, why don't we always have wonderful dreams? <laughs> why, why isn't every dream wonderful? Um, and the answer seems to be that that's not how our psychology works. It doesn't actually seem to tend towards bringing only joy and peace it seems to be drawn towards all sorts of strange um kind of strange kind of directions um often because it's so convinced that everything it comes across is is separate you know is is something outside of itself and um so certainly the idealist schools of buddhism generally argue that one of the major ignorances that we needed to overcome was this belief that the world we encounter is separate from our own mind that you know when bad things happen um that those are somehow you know certainly natural things you know like um, you know, bad weather or something the idea that that's just you know right. just happens to you and then they push towards no actually that was your consciousness did that it's like a bad dream you know it, it's of something in your psychology something in your deep deep kind of consciousness threw up this bad this bad weather you know for some reason and if you can understand why um you might be able to remedy it you know and you can then you know make make changes and so it, it's a kind of deep radical psychology that they end up the idealist schools end up um engaging in which i think is quite fascinating on its own merits really yeah it really is it really is and and it's um you know some of my other questions and and we'll get to, to wrapping up here in a minute but you know one of my other thoughts and questions is you know when when if consciousness lives past what i thought was death before we started this conversation now i think my my own notion of death is, is changing, but as I thought of it in the beginning of this conversation, consciousness, you know, surviving after death, does does consciousness, is it gathering knowledge? And does it take that knowledge, you know, with it mm-hmm. as it moves? I can see in the, the three different models you gave me, I can kind of see what some of those answers might be. But, you know, as we, as a consciousness does survive after the death of the body, you know, is it bringing all the knowledge that it learned along with it? Mm. Yeah, I think this is this is always one of those interesting ones because it's um, it starts to kind of begin to paint a picture of of kind of almost like an entire vision of how what what the meaning of everything is in a way. Because there are generally, I think, there are two views that end up um, developing. Um, one is very optimistic, and the others um, less so. So. Uh, I'll start with the last one. The, the traditional Buddhist view um, is that whilst we are capable of remembering um, everything that's ever happened to us, um, our memories generally get pushed down into the kind of depths of our consciousness. So most of the time we don't remember, um, and therefore, sadly, we don't learn from life to life. Um, we we can, if we can find ourselves in a position where we are meditating or we are able to access 
our memories, then we can suddenly start to re, you know, recapture um, knowledge from past lives. Um, but this isn't the kind of an automatic thing. So there it's, it's a far more difficult process where we are far more liable to forget, to get lost and caught up in the same cycles again and again. Um, the more optimistic view is this idea that underneath all of this, underneath each life is some kind of um, some kind of development that some, we are learning that, that in each life we're a little bit more wise than we were before. And we are inevitably moving towards wiser and wiser states. And it's just this process that's just, just happening. Um, and I think that one is far more optimistic. Um, but on the other hand, I think they both have their benefits because I think actually the traditional Buddhist one, which is a bit more um, less optimistic, basically, a bit more kind of willing to accept that maybe we get lost a lot, at least um, means that we have to be more serious about our negativities. We have to accept that if we don't really get to grips with our psychology, uh, particularly the negative tendencies we have, we can't expect just to be slowly drifted, you know, sort of slowly elevated out of them by sort of some kind of natural evolution. So at least that one allows us, to, you know, it motivates us to be more serious about our, our psychology. Of course, on the other hand, the optimistic view is quite nice because sometimes it's just very difficult to manage our psychology. And it's nice to think that there is this, we're being carried on this tide of slow learning and wisdom that's sort of bubbling up almost or gathering right. yeah, from life to life. Um, but I'm not sure which one of those I, <laughs> I ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, that's and you know that actually is a is a is a good insight, a good explanation for understanding some of that. Um, so I guess I guess it's time to to kind of wrap up here. And before I do, you know, I've got that that one question I sent you this morning that I'm always you know looking to see how how we can apply some of these concepts and, and developing or exploring more of our own consciousness. But before I get to that um, fascinating subject here, is there anything that, that I didn't ask that you would, would like to discuss? Um, anything that came up here that you wanted to expand on or anything that I missed? Um, no, I, I suppose I was thinking I might just say a little bit more about memory because, um, because one of the yeah. things I think, regardless of which option we take um, about whether we are learning um, from life to life, um, one of the kind of Buddhist assumptions all the way through has been that you do retain everything you experience, that basically that memory isn't really isn't stored in the brain that's one of these ideas that's, that's kind of ubiquitous um, in kind of Indian and, and Buddhist philosophy um, and I think one of the things that I have been sort of thinking about a lot in my as part of my project um, is this idea that it does seem that consciousness may have to have an element of retention in it that it's just it's by its nature it re retains experience and if that's true then it does seem like nothing that happens to us would be lost as it were so whilst it might be that the brain is needed to help us access memories, it might be that actually those memories are, are always there just in the very fabric of consciousness that it's, they're always retained, which I think is quite a nice, that's quite, um, I find that quite uplifting if that is true, because it's nice to think, yeah. that, you know, even if you, yeah, you struggle to remember these things, they're there ready for you to pick them up if you do ever you know, explore consciousness, um, which I suppose is another reason. Yeah. yeah, so that kind of does lead on actually to the last question really is, um, is that I think that if, for me a lot of the time thinking about these questions um, and approaching consciousness in these ways I find can be quite motivating um, simply because it makes it makes the world just seem a lot more interesting and 
more importantly, open to um, open to development, really. I mean, maybe the world itself is quite a tricky place to change, but but we become more um, able to develop, right? So we don't just have these, you know, maybe if we're very lucky, a hundred or so years to develop ourselves. Um, it's just an ongoing process. It's, it's all that's happening. You know, we develop ourselves or we don't, um, but it's not like we have this this window, you know, where we have to, um, you know, fight for survival. And if we have time, you know, develop ourselves. Actually, the, the kind of multi-life perspective, um, if we could get our heads around it, offers us, you know, it offers the opportunity to think about things in a different way and say, well, actually, you know, this is one of many lives and I'll, you know, use it to the max to try and really connect with the world and with my consciousness and with the consciousness of others. Um, but, you know, it's, it's not the be all and end all to fight for survival. <laughs> um, you right. know, because actually, you know, if rebirth true, survival is a given. And actually for Buddhists, survival is the problem, <laughs> you know, that we keep coming back again and again in different bodies of varying quality right. is actually not great. Um, it just completely reorients the whole thing. You know? So from moving from, from this you know, fear of death, because we want to grasp hold of life as much as we can, um, we can move more towards a recognition that, you know, death is just a gateway. It's, you know, it's, it's inconvenient to, in the extreme, um, you know, and it's, it's, it's a loss, you know, and it's, it is horrible, but it, it no longer has that sometimes overwhelming element to it, you know, where it completely can right. render the entirety of life meaningless. I think that's, I think that's one of the benefits, I think, to approaching consciousness in this way, I think, is that it's, it suddenly opens things up a bit more. Um, yeah, it really, it really is. You know, I had a, I had a close friend in, in college who was a Buddhist, and he had such a, a peace about him. You know, he was sent to America to, to go to college and then return to Japan, but he had such a, a peace about him that I that I always wondered about. And even, you know, twenty years later, thirty years later, it's you know I think about him and that peace that he had, and it seems to be like what you're saying there is if you know we've got more of an opportunity than this, you know, 80 to 100 year window, it sure, it probably allows us to really explore a lot deeper because we're not, you know, stressing ourselves out trying to, trying to get everything done or focused or find mm -hmm. this happiness or whatever it is here in this, this small window, it really mm -hmm. kind of opens us up to, to be free. Yeah. And I think it becomes a gateway for all sorts of other ways of thinking. I mean, you know, even if we are, you know, struggling to find time to meditate um, or, you know, I mean, we always never can really get as much time as we'd like. Just, the, you know, the daily grind of kind of going to work and, and, and what have you framed in this way. You know, if you, if you, you know, if you kind of you know, spend a day just putting kind of I know, traditional Buddhist glasses on and looking around, you suddenly end up not being just some kind of drone who's kind of got a, you know, you know work day to day, you know, on the daily grind. You become a traveler, you know, in this world, who's found themselves in this body, in this really interesting world that could just be one of many, you know, and um, the way we do things, you know, the kind of, or whether it's the politics or the environment or anything, the way we've done things in this world may just be one of many ways of doing things. Um, and suddenly, I think you can feel a lot less trapped. And you can feel as if maybe there's a lot more going on under the surface, uh, or behind the yeah. scenes or, you know, wherever. Um, and so I think just suddenly, you know, when things start to get unpleasant or annoying or irritating, then it becomes easier to still think, wow, actually, you know, this is just a 
it's, it's just a bit of a it's a bit of a ride you know and if i can learn something that's great and if i can connect with people that's great i don't need to be so um so focused and obsessed with this you know the particular intricacies of this situation and i do think that does you know make peace a lot easier to to get because you get this sort of you talk about perspective i mean the multi-life perspective is just <laughs> this vast kind of scope right. uh on life that suddenly um you know, puts me in mind of a, there's a Buddhist saying that, you know, if you pour a, you know, a, um, a cup full of salt into a bucket of water, and then you try and drink the bucket of water, you'll probably find it way too salty. But if you pour the same cup into a lake and you try and drink the lake water, you'll probably be fine. In the same way, you know, that vast perspective, that huge journey we've got, I think does allow us to then say, okay, I'm going to take my time here. I'm going to really you know, relax, you know, I can't just, you know, hide, you know, until life comes to its natural end or until I can find a nice sort of quiet retirement. Um, suddenly it becomes about really taking your time to try and really make sense of the world and really yeah, build a relationship with it um, for the long term. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I think I feel that that is just quite healthy, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. What What a fantastic, positive, optimistic view definitely something to to meditate on mm. and yeah this is i mean this is why my project is what it's what it is and just trying to do the first steps really towards taking this view and and, and not making it i suppose demystifying it you know um and i think it was interesting is it's not being mystified so much by um by the actual kind of buddhists who present it it's actually the mystif the mystifying is coming from the fact that it seems like it's automatically wrong it's, it's got to be wrong it's just so out there but i suppose I, yeah i'm just trying to do right. those first steps towards saying well, actually you know maybe maybe this is a view that that can be you know defended and can be argued for yeah yeah i like it i like it well jacob i appreciate everything all the insight you provided today it's been a fantastic conversation I, you know i can't thank you enough for your time and you know and spending it with me today and answering all these all these questions and i think it's been uh it's been a lot of fun um yes yeah, it's, my, it's my pleasure thank you for, for inviting me on it's it's been great fun